Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy podcast. My name's Dave and I'm your host. Today is another episode of Stand Up Tragedy Replayed where we combine some of our previous performers together in one themed package for your enjoyment. In this episode of Stand Up Tragedy Replayed we're going to engage our brains and listen back to some of the tragic lectures that have been told to our audiences on our stage. Stand Up Tragedy is a place where people can share tragedy on any topic and today's performers have found tragedy in very specialist fields. First up we have Timandra Harkness who's been on our stage sharing tragedy and sharing comedy and sharing science quite a few times. She first performed with us at the Leicester Square Theatre in 2012 and we had her back at the Hackney Attic early this year and then she performed with us twice at the Edinburgh Festival. Timandra likes to educate through her comedy and her special interest is maths and science, statistics, that sort of thing. In previous shows she's explored the science and statistics of death so that's what made That show is why I reached out to her and said, hey, what you do, it fits with stand-up tragedy really well. The performance you're going to hear today is from the Hackney Attic back in January this year. You, you, you'll have guessed from the notebook that some of this is, is very new. Uh, so I can't read my own handwriting, so it's, it's entirely fictitious. I, I, I would love to say I'm going to lift the mood, but I, I, is anyone having a good start to 2013? Yeah, yeah. oh, good, thank God. Because honestly, my friends are having such bad starts the year that when I talk to someone and they go, oh, I've got a cold and I'm skint and I've got a huge tax bill, I go, thank God, thank God it's only that. No, it's, it's, it's just, it's like an emotional massacre. My friends, my friends' lives. I, two of my friends are suddenly, unexpectedly single, not by choice. Uh, it got so bad um, that before Christmas, I was rather drunk and uh, another couple were visiting who are long-standing friends of mine, had been together for ages. I was so drunk, I hugged them both as they left and went, you're not going to split up, are you? Say you'll stay together. I, I, yeah, I'm sorry, that's just not even funny, it's just true. And I had, to, I had to wake up in the morning and go, I really did that, didn't I? Yeah, yeah. But they haven't got any kids, somebody had to do it. Uh, I, I, don't normally, I don't normally do material about relationships, because they say, you know, write about what you know. And No, no, it's, I do have relationships, I have relationships, but I'm a bit like most people are with cars, you know, as long as it's going well. You don't pull over to the side of the road and look under the bonnet and see what keeps it running, do you? No. And so I'm, I'm like that with relationships. It's, it's only when they do start to break down that you get out of the old one as fast as you can and into another one that's going better. <laughs> Come on, we've all done it. Is it our fault if somebody collides with the wreckage? No. No. Uh, so... Yeah, it did, yeah, that really... Is. Oh, OK, I'm not that bad. I do know that, like... Like cars, relationships need a bit of maintenance, you know, regular lubrication. Check the thickness of the rubber now and then. Change the plugs every six months. See, <laughs> I wasn't sure whether that was too dated. Younger people in the room, there was a time when plugs were something you put into a car because they provided the spark in the carburetor. Yeah. Now there's something your mother reads about on the train as some guy puts them up some woman's ass. 
how times have changed. Uh, yeah, but no, I do know you need to do maintenance for a relationship. You know, paint over the knocks with rust restricting paint. And No, okay, that was the cast. Uh, yeah, so I do know that much, but I'm not really that good. And I'm not very good. When my friends break up, I don't really know what to do to help. I'm, my mother says I think like a bloke, and it's true, really. <laughs> Women. Um, it, no, but it's true. It, so when people break up and I go, oh, uh, I, I kind of give them like a little manly punch on the arm and buy them a beer, and I, I, just, I just don't know what to do. I'm, I'm a bit hopeless, really. I, I, I'm so hopeless that uh, when I have a friend who's an attractive guy that I've known for ages and you know, he rings up and says, oh, my wife has just left me unexpectedly. I go, oh, okay, right. So you know, I go around, I give him the, the manly punch on the arm, buy him a beer, and, he, and he's sitting there and, and going, oh, I don't know. I, she just, she's apparently she's been seeing someone for ages and she just walked out and you know, it's all over. And I go, oh, how could she do that? You know, you're so nice and attractive and funny and lovely. And I'm actually sitting there thinking, you know, and you're a bit vulnerable now, so if anything, you're even more attractive. I'm thinking, you, you know, God, he must be feeling at a really low ebb now. He's really vulnerable. He's, you know, he's, his self-esteem is shot. He's feeling really unattractive. He's on the rebound. The last thing he needs is some woman hitting on him. So I give him a box of hankies and I go home. I know, idiot, idiot. I wouldn't do that now. Now, he ring, I'd, I'd be straight round there with you know, six bottles of wine and the Rohypnol, frankly. <laughs> But that's, that is how bad I am. I'm so bad that when my friend says to me, oh, God, it's, it's awful. It's like, it's so unexpected. We've been together for 10 years, and he just rings up and says it's all over. It's like, it's like he's died, except in a way it's worse because, you know, when somebody dies, they're not deliberately rejecting you. And I go, well, well no, I mean, it's, you know, okay, it's... In, in the short term, I, I think she's got a point. And, and I go, well, well, yeah, but, you know, unless, of course, it's suicide, because then it's kind of, you know, it is absolutely final. They're gone, and you'll never see them again. But they've also deliberately done it to you uh, as the kind of final selfish act of, well, there's going to be no apology, no reconciliation, and I definitely have the last word. <laughs> well, it's true, though, isn't it? I mean, it's, I, I do think... Obviously, people, as we've just heard, people attempt suicide in extremists, but there is something very selfish about it because you're going, right, you know, I'm doing this, and I'm off, and you've got all the guilt and the grief, and you're never going to be able to ask me why I did it. I'm off, out of here. And some people, for some people, even that's not enough. They have to actually then go, okay, I hate you all, and it's really unfair, but I'm not going to just kill myself. No, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make more of a mark. I want my death to affect other people's lives, and I want, I want it to hit the news. Yeah, I'm talking about the person under the train. <laughs> Isn't, is that a peculiarly British thing, though? Because you think... An, an American, it's like if you've got a, an angry, petulant, hurting teenager in America, they go, I hate you all, it's so unfair, and I'm going to kill myself, but I'm going to take some of you with me. And they get some guns, and they shoot lots of innocent people, and they wait for the police to come in and kill them, and they call it suicide by cop. It's a, it's a recognised thing. But in this country, they go, I, I, I hate you all, it's so unfair, and I'm going to kill myself, but I'm going to make millions of you up to an hour late for work. And you'll feel it's too churlish to say that I'm selfish because I've just killed myself. Ha! This is British. It's British. It's passive-aggressive right to the end. And with hindsight, I shouldn't have said all this to my friend who'd just been dumped. But you live and learn.
don't you? Uh, so I have lived and learned. So, for example, when she said, yeah, when, when I talk to her, I try and come for her, I, 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 I don't say, well, yes, at the moment, you're really hurting, you're heartbroken, you feel that your life is over, you, you feel worthless and unlovable, and you struggle to get out of bed in the morning, and you have that awful moment where you wake up and you've forgotten that you should be sad, and then it comes back to you like a concrete block on the chest. But you, what you don't know is it's also increasing your chance of dying. I don't say that, you see? I'm learning, I'm learning. I don't say that. It is unfortunately true. They, they have done studies that single people especially people who just split up with someone, are more likely to die. They, I know, I know, as if life wasn't bad enough. But, but you see, I'm learning. I didn't, I didn't say this to her. I didn't say this. So I am getting better, guys, and women, and people. Mum, mum! See, I'm not really a bloke. I'm getting better. Uh, but, yeah, it is true. They did this study. They got 45,000 people uh, who had heart problems, and they followed them for four years. They didn't, like, stalk them. It wasn't like, I know, let's get 45,000 people with heart problems and stalk them and see how many of them die. <laughs> Amusing, though, that would be. That would never get through the ethics committee. No, no, they, they followed them medically. They followed them to see what happened to them. And they found that the ones that lived on their own, um, this is, uh, I, think, I think the worst, the most in the, the group who were most affected by living alone were the 45 to 60-year-olds See, I can remember figures. Why does my mum say I'm like a bloke? <laughs> Women. Um, no, the 45 to 60-year-olds, they were 24% more likely to die if they lived on their own than if they lived with... You know, it didn't have to be a partner. It could be a flatmate or somebody. But, but if you lived on your own, you're more likely to die. Uh, and I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, yes, Tamandra, but the 45 to 60 age group statistically is still quite unlikely to die. So even though your relative chance of dying goes up by 24%, it's still not that significant. That's what you were thinking, wasn't it? Yes. You're my people. Uh, this is, honestly, I'm still not really used to performing without a whiteboard to draw graphs on. That's, yeah, you think I'm joking. That bit's true. Uh, but and they, you know, and they did another study. They, they, they studied people over 60. So there's an age group where you know, there is actually a measurable chance that you're going to die because hardly anybody dies before the age of 65. 1911, 63% of us were dead before the age of 65. That's why they didn't have a pensions crisis then. Nobody lived to draw one. Uh, now there's only a one in 10 chance that, um, that, I, that I'll be dead before I get to the age of 65. It's a pity I haven't got a pension because the nine in 10 chance I'll need one. But there you go. Uh, so, yeah, so they followed, um, they followed another grunt, grunch, grunch, grunch. What's a, a, a grunch? It's a scientific term for um, a group of people being studied and followed home. <laughs> they, they took a grunch of people over 60, and, uh, and they followed them medically for 10 years, and, uh, and they found that, and they asked them at the start of the study, they, they asked them if they ever felt lonely. And they found at the end of the study, people who'd said they felt lonely were 45% more likely to die than the people who hadn't said they were lonely. This is this after 10 years. What's really worrying is two-thirds of the people who said they were lonely were married or in a relationship. Yeah. You, you can kind of guess how much help I am to my, my friends who are recently <laughs> single. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's not good for you being on your own. And in fact, uh, it's, it's especially bad for guys um, so take a, take a random guy in the room. You, you sir, you, you sir in the light-coloured collar. 
I can't really see that much from here. In the light colored collar, let's take you as an example. Now, do you smoke? No, you don't smoke. That's good. Uh, if you smoked, your chance of dying in the next seven years would go up by 5%. Are you single? No. That's also good because if you were single, even, you know, even though you don't fall into the really dangerous age, if you were single, your chance of dying in the next seven years would go up by 6%. So it's actually more dangerous, guys, to be single than to smoke. Yeah, I'm telling you this... I'm telling you this for altruistic reasons, because for women, the stats are different. Yeah. See, I don't smoke. If I took up smoking, my chance of dying in the next seven years would go up by 6%, more dangerous. But if I got married, because I am single, uh, if I got married, my chance of dying would only go down by 3%. See, so it wouldn't be enough. If I wanted to start smoking, it wouldn't be enough for me to get married to counteract the risk. No, I'd have to commit bigamy. Just for medical reasons. <laughs> but finally, uh, the, other, the other thing that is dangerous about being single and being recently, recently dumped, and again, I'm not telling my friends this, because although I'm insensitive, I'm, I'm not that insensitive, uh, is that, in fact, having sex also protects you from dying. And I have just printed off the, uh, the summary of this study because it's that good. Some of you may have heard of this before. It's the... Caffili cohort study. I should warn you, if anybody likes Caffili cheese, you will never be able to think of it in the same way again. <laughs> this is a paper from the British Medical Journal, 1997. Sex and death, are they related? Findings from the Caffili cohort study. Uh, I, I'll give you the citation if anybody wants it later. Uh, abstract. Objective. To examine the relation between frequency of orgasm and mortality. I don't know why I bother writing jokes, really. <laughs> I'm just reading this out. Study design, cohort study with a 10-year follow-up. See, that didn't get a laugh, did it? Uh, setting, the town of Caffili, South Wales, and five adjacent villages. Subjects, 918 men, aged 45 to 59 at time of recruitment between 1979 and 1983. I'm going to make a mark which, these, which of these lines gets a laugh. Main outcome measures, all deaths and deaths from coronary heart disease. See, it's getting a bit tense now because you want to find out what the answer is, isn't it? All the, all the men, especially now, are sitting there and going, what is it? Should we have more or fewer? More <laughs> or fewer? Anybody in this room who wants the numbers isn't going to tolerate the word less. I can tell that. <laughs> oh, yeah, my whiteboard people. Uh, okay, so here it is. Result. Oh, a tense silence in the room. Mortality risk was 50% lower in the group with high orgasmic frequency than in the group with low orgasmic frequency with evidence of a dose-response relation across the groups. <laughs> so, yeah, basically, if we draw a graph, the more orgasms, the less likely you are to die in a straight line. Uh, I could give you the age-adjusted odds ratio, but, uh, but, yeah, basically, conclusion, sexual activity seems to have a protective effect on men's health. And you'll notice that they only studied men in this, and I wondered why that was, and I realised, of course, it's much harder. If you're, going, if you're basing it on number of orgasms, it's much harder with women, because for a woman, it is much easier to bring an unsatisfying sexual encounter to, uh, to an early conclusion by faking death.
So they are. I hope your 2013 shapes up better than most of my friends. That's all I'm saying. Thank you. So hopefully we all learnt something from Timandra there. And if you'd like to learn about Timandra, go to www.timandraharkness.com. That's T-I-M-A-N-D-R-A-H-A-R-K-E-N-E-S-S. And you can find her at Timandra Harkness on Twitter. In August this year, Stand Up Tragedy were downstairs at the Fiddler's Elbow in Edinburgh as part of the PPH Free Fringe. This was the first time that Stand Up Tragedy had gone up to Edinburgh. We really enjoyed our time there, a different lineup every night. We had many of our favourite performers came up with us and we met a hell of a lot of new and amazing performers up there. And one of the people who performed with us for the first time up in Edinburgh was Steve Cross. He is a comedian and science and academic idea communicator whose mission is to make science funny. He organises a whole collection of live events. Bright Club, where people from the academic community do stand-up, science show-off, museum show-off, geek show-off, specialist science, the list goes on and on. The next Bright Club is on the 20th of November at the Phoenix in Cavendish Square in London, and it's going to feature Nish Kumar, who is going to be performing with us in 2014, and James Ancaster. And you can find out more about that at www.brightclub.com. So now let's have a listen to Steve performing for us up in Edinburgh. Hello, everybody. Wasn't that one of the most awkward introductions ever? Uh, no, it's quite nice. It's quite nice uh, to have a, a slightly awkward introduction when you've got to come on and, and try and do do science comedy after hearing about people who are deeply in love dying. Unexpected. Because, I mean, it's the natural follow-on from something like that, isn't it? You know, jokes where the punchline is pie's value to 12 significant figures. No, uh, so, uh, hello, 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 hello. It's good. You're a very polite crowd you've got, Dave. I like the fact you all said hello. Quite often crowds will just cheer kind of incoherently and scream at you when you say hello to them. If you say, how are you doing? They just go mental. Anyway, yes, so uh, my, name's, my name's Steve Cross. Um, uh, I, 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 I ought to describe myself as a science comedian. Uh, I run Bright Club in London. I run Science Show Off. I run all sorts of things like that. But um, I've got kind of sick of science recently. <laughs> so I'd like, I'd like to apologise to the organisers who I promised a whole set of the tragedy of science and climate change and those sorts of things. But, um, yeah, I've, I've got sick of science because I've realised that all of science is a lie. <laughs> and the reason I've realised that all of science is a lie is that science is built entirely on maths. And it turns out that maths is a lie. And the reason I know that maths is a lie is that last week I went through the channels on my Freeview box there's a channel four plus one, and there's a channel five, and they're not the same. <laughs> so science is completely a lie. Uh, so I've, I've started talking about other things and telling jokes about other things. And one of the weird things that happens when you start standing on stage and trying to be funny and trying to tell stories is that you talk about things in front of a group of strangers that you would never talk about to the people that you know really well who love you. And um, my parents have realized this. 
So I, I don't tell my parents very much about my life, about my love life. You know, we're different generations. Um, you know, they're very religious, I'm not. They don't really approve of quite a lot of the decisions that I've taken. They don't really understand the things I'm into. So I don't tell them much about my life. So now they come to my gigs. Uh, they come to my gigs and they, they sit in the front row with a notepad. <laughs> and this has led to possibly the harshest heckle I have ever had in my life, also the quietest heckle I've ever had in my life, also the only heckle I've ever had in my life from my dad. Uh, I don't think he meant it as a heckle, but I was talking about something, everything went silent, and just loud enough for everyone in the room to hear it, he turned to my mum and went, oh, he's straight. <laughs> So yeah, uh, you end up talking about things that you, you probably shouldn't talk about. So uh, since we're at Stand Up for Tragedy, uh, <coughs> well, I think I've broken someone. <laughs> Do you know my parents? <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, since we're at Stand Up for Tragedy, uh, I, I was actually gonna talk to you a bit about depression because uh, I've been through periods of, of fairly severe depression in my life. Uh, so I was going to tell you about one of those. So it's kind of a real tragedy, but it weaves into it a number of fictional tragedies. Uh, I'm going to be very strong on where the guiding lines are between my tragedy and the fictional tragedies, because as bad as my tragedy gets is having to live in Newcastle. <laughs> do, we, do we have any Geordies in? Kind of. Kind of a Geordie? No, I live there. You live there? Isn't it horrible? <laughs> No, I say that. It's, so I, I moved to uh, Newcastle in my mid-twenties, which is the worst time to move to Newcastle. Because anyone with, anyone with two A-levels to rub together fucks off when they're 18, and then they come back when they're 38 to raise their kids. Because everything's cheap and there's loads of space. Uh, so I went there when I was 25, which is the absolute kind of bottom of the population gap there. So I went to Newcastle. I got really unhappy in Newcastle. And what I would do, because I was really unhappy in Newcastle, is I'd go and visit my friends in London. And you know that somewhere is really depressing when the way you cheer yourself up is going to the rat city boy and estate agent infested smog hole that is our capital. And I, and I, would, I would go down and I'd visit three friends of mine who lived together and they were all girls. And what they would do was try and cheer me up. So one time I was down there and they said, well, no, we'll cheer you up, Steve. We'll take you to see a film. There's a film on called Requiem for a Dream. <laughs> I take it from the laughter that many of you have seen this. Has, has anyone not seen Requiem for a Dream? Okay, don't go and see it. That's all I'm saying. Do not go and see Requiem for a Dream. Now, the way my friends sold the film Requiem for a Dream to me is they said, Steve, uh, Jennifer Connelly's in it. <laughs> now, you know, I, I, in 1986, the film Labyrinth came out. <laughs> Jennifer Connelly was 16, I was 10. I know it's hard to believe, uh, but I was 10 in 1986, and I remember watching Jennifer Connelly. Now, I've told you about the moment when my dad found this out. This is the moment I found this out. I remember watching Jennifer Connelly in Labyrinth and thinking, I like girls. I really, really, really like girls. <laughs> right now, I like one specific girl who's a very famous actress and considerably older than me, but that's a start. We'll go from there for the rest of my life. Uh, so for me, you know, Jennifer Connelly is the absolute quintessence of woman and always has been and represents for me just kind of innocence but desire combined together. She's perfect and unsullied and must never, for instance, be required to end a film, ass to ass with another girl, double ending a dildo the size of a bouncer's arm. That should never happen, 
Ten-year-old me should never have to watch that, even if he's trapped in the body of 27-year-old me. There is no way he should ever have to see that in real life. So uh, that's the end of, the, of, of Requiem for a Dream. Uh, this is the film my friends have taken me to. Let's not forget to cheer me up. I should say, they had form. Three weeks before I'd gone down to visit them, some of you will remember 2000 and the popular films at the time. Some weeks before, I'd gone to visit them, and they said, do you know what, Steve? There's a film on with Bjorkin. Shall we go and see that? <laughs> they said, it's a musical with Bjorkin. It's called Dancer in the Dark. That'll cheer you right up. A little bit of a musical with Bjorkin. What they didn't mention, it's a musical right at the very end. They put a bag over Bjork's head, and they hang her. They hang her for crimes she didn't commit. <laughs> it is the most miserable thing in the world. A friend of mine, who's from Leeds, left that film five minutes before the end because it's so incredibly dark. Uh, and that was, that, was, that was the original one, and then they took me to see Requiem for a Dream. And uh, for those of you who don't know Requiem for a Dream, Requiem for a Dream these days is mostly famous for providing music for other films' trailers. So, uh, Lord of the Rings and Sunshine and a number of other things. Because the actual soundtrack for the film doesn't contain anything that's sufficiently portentous and warns of danger, they just use the soundtrack from Requiem for a Dream instead. So, Requiem for a Dream, uh, it's a story of addiction and it's a story of happiness which then turns to just hope, which turns to loss, which turns to ass to ass with a giant dildo the size of a bouncer's arm. That's a bit much for you guys this time of day, isn't it? I've noticed. I might try this again on drunk people at 10, and they'll be like, yes, Steve, ass to ass! Uh, so anyway, uh, so it ends with that. But at the beginning, they're all very happy, uh, but this portentous music is playing the whole time. And you're sitting there going, this is, this is a film, they're all happy, they're selling the drugs, and everything's okay, and they're all happy, it'll be fine. And the music's going, they're not fine. <laughs> Stuff is coming, bad stuff. And you go, no, music, music, you're lying, music, music, no. They're fine, everything's gonna be, the music is not lying. It is a very, 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 very miserable film. Now, uh, the thing I remember most of all about this film was that, uh, it's the first time I'd been to the Odeon in Camden. And, uh, hello, as a guy down from Newcastle, it was very exciting for me to be at the Odeon in Camden. I thought, this is a very cultural bit of London. It's very, very creative. Um, and the weird thing was, at the end of this film, everybody sat through all of the credits. And I thought, what a cultured, cultured crowd. They've watched the whole of the credits. And then the credits finished, and they still didn't move. So I thought, wow, this is incredibly cultured. They're, they're kind of contemplating the film. So then I looked around. The entire cinema is full of people like this. And there they stayed for about five minutes. So I should say, uh, if you ever need to cheer yourself up, uh, the very best thing to do is go and see Requiem for a Dream and then spend the rest of the weekend in a flat with three women who keep spontaneously bursting into tears when they remember any bit of Requiem for a Dream. Uh, and also, don't go and see Requiem for a Dream. That's all I'm saying. Uh, I, I, know that, I know that's more sharing than you were expected, but thank you very much for dealing with it. I've been Steve Cross. <laughs> Every day of the Edinburgh Festival, we put out a podcast that featured one or more of our performers, as well as some extra bits 
from around the city. Steve's episode is SUT Daily 22, which also features an interview with Robin Ince. You can listen back to that on SoundCloud or you can find it on iTunes or you can find it through the Stitcher Smart Radio app because that's all of the places that you can find our podcast. You can follow Steve Cross on Twitter where he's at Steve underscore Cross. So now we have one more performer ready to teach you something tragic. Before that happens, I just want to tell you how you can get a little bit more tragedy into your life. Stand-up tragedy is really at our heart is our live nights. That's where we get all of the recordings for these podcasts and that's where the tragedy really comes together. The next time we're doing this is for our tragic Christmas which is happening on December the 12th at the Dog Star in Brixton. It's going to be a fundraiser for the amazing organisation Arts Emergency. Find out more about them at Arts Emergency on Twitter or through their website. We're bringing together our collection of our favourite stand-up performers. The only person who's going to be performing who we've never had before is Felicity Ward and she is really amazing and the rest of the lineup are all people who we know really well who are coming back so there's going to be a really great party atmosphere. If you don't like Christmas as well there'll be plenty for you. It's going to be an equal opportunities the tragedy of Christmas from the point of view of people who like Christmas and people who don't like Christmas. So come along and kind of get some catharsis around the tragedies that can happen at Christmas. We're going to also be launching our fanzine that night and we're going to have some tragic sing-alongs and it's going to be really great. Five pounds in advance from our website or seven pounds if you want to get the fanzine as well or seven pounds on the door or nine pounds if you want to get the fanzine as well it's going to be at least three hours of entertainment stand up tragedy as promised here's our final act we have all sorts of performers on the stand up tragedy stage i first heard leo healy talking about amiga power on Josie Long's podcast, Lost Treasures of the Black Heart. I just loved what he did and I reached out to him and said, hey Leo, if you happen to be in the Edinburgh Festival, would you like to do it? He came to Edinburgh especially, he wasn't going to be there. And so here he is telling us about the tragedy of Amiga Power. Uh, as Dave said, my name's Leo, and tonight I'd like to talk to you about a computer games magazine called Amiga Power. In my opinion, the greatest computer games magazine ever written. Yeah. Now, um, I, I realise that getting up here and saying, hello, my name's Leo, I'd like to come and talk to you about a computer games magazine, uh, Amiga Power, the greatest computer games magazine of all time is, well, it, a little bit... Computer games don't really have the best press at the moment. I may as well get up here and say, hello, my name's Leo, I'd like to talk to you about Nuts magazine the greatest uh, football and boobs magazine of all time. Or given the, um, given the sort of the editorial integrity of, of computer games magazines at the moment, I may as well get up here and say, I'd like to talk to you about Autumn Winter 2007, the greatest Argos catalogue of all time. <laughs> <laughs> um, which, because, you know, their games magazines now are basically um, advertising for um, computer games. Um, it, it's not the best example. Um, 
it's, it's doubly not the best example because August winter 2007 isn't even the best Argos catalogue of all time. Um, spring, uh, summer two, uh, 1985 is the best Argos catalogue of all time. Um, you've got A-team bed sheets, you've got meta uh, mechanical typewriters, you've got a little like Knight Rider pedal car with a um, sticker of David Hasselhoff's face on the front of it. I mean, what's not to like there? Um, but I'm not talking about any of those. Um, I'm not talking about the present of computer games magazines. I'm talking about the past. The glorious, glorious forgotten past. I'm talking about Amiga Power. Um, Amiga, Power uh, bleh, Amiga Power was published from 1991 to 1996 by Future Publishing. Um, well, it was written in the offices of Future Publishing by um, people who were employed by Future Publishing. But Future Publishing themselves were sort of indifferent to its existence, really, which in a weird way sort of worked to their advantage um, because they were able to kind of write whatever they wanted um, they, uh, without... Um, Publishers breathing down the necks or anything, which is a real problem um, currently for computer games magazines. Um, the Amiga in its name is related to the Commodore Amiga computer, which um, was brought out in the mid 80s, uh, beginning with the Amiga 1000 in 1985, um, the Amiga 500 in 1987, the 500 Plus, the 600, the 2000, the um, CD TV, which was sort of like a half VCR, half CD player that had about four games released for it and then sank without a trace. Um, the 2500, the 3000, the 1200, the 4000, um, the CD32, which was a games console brought out to compete with stuff like the Super Nintendo, the Sega Mega Drive, but, um, um, but it was basically just an Amiga 1200 without a keyboard and with a CD-ROM drive. Uh, that one pretty much bankrupted Commodore. Actually, um, anyway, um, Amiga, <laughs> Amiga Power's sole focus was games brought out for the Amiga. They didn't talk about programming it or adding more memory to it or anything. And, but despite this like, clearly stated, um, often repeated fact, people kept writing into the magazine um, with like, boring technical questions, um, asking, like, how do I connect my CD32 to a printer? despite the fact that the CD32 is the games console one. Um, this kept happening, and, and it really got on the writer's nerves. So what they do every couple of months is um, collect all those letters into one big section called Ask AP, and then they would respond to them with incredibly violent threats. Um, <laughs> in the example, how do I connect my CD32 to a printer? They would respond, why don't you try gouging out your eyes with a fork to try and stop people, to, uh, try and stop people uh, sending those letters in. But um, it... It didn't really work. And that was what was great about Amiga Power, or certainly one of the things. Um, it was the irreverent, angry young man of computer games magazines in my eyes. Um, certainly the, the, uh, the, cover, the cover line on the magazine, just underneath where it said Amiga Power, from the very first issue was a magazine with attitude, which was changed after issue uh, 51, um, when um, Cam Winston, who took over as the editor, uh, to the magazine with attitude, because he thought a magazine with attitude was too wishy-washy, and he didn't like that at all, which, yeah, which, um, which is great. And another great thing about Amiga Power was um, the fact that they were completely 100% honest with all their reviews, which doesn't sound like a big deal, but when you read other computer games magazines, it really, really is. Um, you know, one of their writers would just play a game and then give his or her honest opinion about the game um, and score it out of 100, with 100 being a perfect game, zero being a completely terrible game, and 50 being an exactly average game. And um, you'd be surprised how much this got on the nerves of computer games publishers, to be honest. Um, I think I'm right in saying Amiga Power holds the, uh, holds the record for the most lawsuits ever filed against a computer games magazine, um, just for you know, doing, right by their, doing right by their readers, making sure they didn't buy rubbish games. Um, 
Um, some companies went even further than this. Um, there were two companies, I think, uh, US Gold and Team 17, who um, just stopped talking to the magazine altogether. They uh, just stopped sending them games to review after they gave one of their games um, a, a bad review one time. Uh, so if Amiga Power wanted to um, uh, review another game by, um, by either of those companies, they would have to um, just go out to a shop and buy it, um, which, again, doesn't sound like a big deal, but <coughs> it just speaks to the integrity of the magazine that they would go to that length to make sure that their publishers, uh, that their readers, sorry, um, didn't buy, didn't buy terrible games, even in the face of um, such as um, Jonathan Nash, the best writer on AP said. Sorry, I've got this written down somewhere. Whining childish hate mongering. Um, that was, uh, that was one, of my favorite, one of my favorite things about the magazine. Um, the picture I've given them so far is they're quite, quite angry, quite like a, like a vicious dog that only really cares about its owner. But they were, they were, they were so much better than that. Uh, more than, they were pretty much the most beautifully written games magazine I've, I've, I've ever come across. Um, like for, for instance, in one issue, um, where one writer, um, Cam Winston Lee, in issue 44, wrote a feature in the magazine called So Why Exactly a Helicopter So Cool? Just because he really liked helicopters. And, and uh, later on in Amiga Power's life, as um, Amiga games started dwindling with stuff like the Sony PlayStation, the Sega Saturn coming out, there not as many games were released on the Amiga anymore. So Amiga Power didn't have as much to write about, but still had a magazine to fill. Um, so what they did, instead of being boring and talking about games from the past or modems or something, um, they got inventive and in issue 55 of the magazine, um, on the front cover um, advertised this, they published the unrelated JFK assassination special, <laughs> which, which is exactly what it sounds like. Uh, basically a nine page feature in the middle of a computer games magazine about the assassination of U.S. President John F. Kennedy. Uh, it was brilliant. Um, they reconstructed um, they reconstructed Dealey Plaza in the office. Uh, they got like a cardboard cutout of Kennedy's head on a stick and put it in a toy car and pulled it along the floor on a string. And one of them sat in like an extended um, you know, the swivel chairs you can sort of like do that with, like extend fully. They sat on one of those and like shot it with a BB gun. That was their job. They did that for work. Um, <laughs> and then in issue 61, um, the they published the AP files, um, which was the two remaining staff members, uh, Tim Norris and Sue Huntley, dressed up like Mulder and Scully and slagged off the paranormal. Um, in issue 63, um, they published a feature called Bloody, 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 which was just uh, a love letter to their favorite actor, the young Michael Caine. Um, it, was, it was a really great time for Amiga Power, like not having anything to write about really freed them up um, to write about anything. They were shut down two issues later. Um, in the final issue, um, <coughs> issue 65, um, all the writers were killed off um, at the final episode of Blake 7 um, by, the, um, by the four cyclists of the apocalypse, which were, uh, which were a group they'd invented several years earlier to, um, to basically liven up a dull feature about uh, joysticks. <laughs> um, it was, yeah, it was, it was quite heartbreaking, really. But um, the, the really heartbreaking thing about Amiga Power is that um, their legacy's kind of forgotten. At one point, they were the best-selling Amiga games magazine in the world, um, with something like a readership of about 40,000, which is massively more than um, games magazines have nowadays. But um, like all the lessons and all the brilliant things they did are largely forgotten. Um, 
there was I think there was there was a couple of, there was a couple of places that still sort of still sort of hold out to their to their beliefs. Uh, the PC Games magazine, uh, PC Games website, sorry, uh, Rock Paper Shotgun. If anyone knows that, um, is influenced by Mega Power definitely. And the only other place was uh, another magazine published by Future called uh, N Gamer or Nintendo Gamer. Then they shut that down last year, so um, that was rubbish. Um, um, I'll leave you uh, with the final words from AP2, the um, Amiga Power's sort of tribute making of website that a few of the writers published um, after, um, after Amiga Power shut down. I've got it written down again. Sorry. Though it no longer exists in physically tangible form, the spirit of Amiga Power cannot be killed. We regret nothing. We apologize for nothing. We hope we were funny. We were never joking. Thank you. And there's more from Leo in SUT Daily episode 22. Next week will be a special edition of the Stand Up Tragedy podcast because we're going to be featuring some of the people who are going to be coming up at Tragic Christmas. It really is an amazing lineup that we've got. And next week, we are going to be sharing our love for them with you and bringing to you some of the reasons why we love them. And we're going to remember that tragedy is always best shared. Listen out for that, and until next time, the tragedy is over. This podcast was produced by Bryony Hawkins and recorded by Stephen Harvey. The music was produced by Sam Wilkinson, who can be contacted at radiojuan at yahoo.com. And our outro music was made by the Reactionaries and George Brufflin.